Uh, thanks so much. Uh, thanks so much, Dominic. They say never start with an apology, but I think I must with this title. I'm sorry, it's not going to be an optimistic talk, although I don't think it's going to be an existential screed either. I at least hope that you may be able to suggest some reasons for hope uh, that I've missed. As Stanley says, I've uh, got long involvement in European research on children's health and diet-related disease, the health problems facing societies that eat many highly processed foods. And that led me to an interest in corporations, also reflecting a long interest, Stanley mentioned, in how we structure divisions of responsibility, collective action, accountability in societies. And then alongside that, a third interest, inescapable, I think, at this historical moment in climate destabilisation. And having written about uh, all these topics, my hope was that it would be useful to write a short book about food systems with a focus on this specific form of organisation, the business corporation. So I'm a political theorist or philosopher by training. I can't claim special expertise on public health or sustainability, but I would argue that we don't generally understand corporations and corporate markets very well or their relation to law and political structures. Now, everyone who writes and researches about food knows that things are pretty badly out of order. Quote from Anne Barnhill and uh, Jessica Fanzo, there's a drumbeat, a drumbeat of calls from experts and institutions for urgent and dramatic action on healthy and sustainable diets. But clarity about the structures and dynamics is hard to find. So my hope was that I could make a useful contribution to at least understanding the situation, as I say, uh, the role and nature of corporations. The difficulty, despair and abandonment. We hope that understanding will point to ways forward. So far as I've understood the situation, we've arrived at a really catastrophic point. So experts have been drumming the calls for change from the point of view of public health and the resources needed to sustain agriculture for more than three decades now. But in that period, most of the changes have gone in exactly the opposite direction. More processed foods, more industrial meat, more biofuel, more reliance on a few staple commodities, more complex supply chains, less support for, far, uh, for small farmers and peasants, more land grabs, more pollution, increasing loss of finite resources like soil, biodiversity, forests, aquifers, worst of all, loss of a stable climate. And on top of that, we've got increasing corporate concentration across all aspects of our food systems. So in most sectors, four or five business corporations command more than half the market across the globe often much more than half. So just to illustrate my theme, here's a famous graphic. Many of you have seen this from Oxfam. But it's not just in processed foods, seeds, pesticides, fertilizers, machinery and other technologies, industrial meats, plantations, supermarkets, commodity trading, processing, distribution, you name it. In outline, it's quite clear what needs to be done. We need to reduce the enormous waste involved in our current food systems, stop feeding food to animals, for instance, stop using technologies that pollute and poison and use up strictly finite resources. The problem is there seems to be no organized power 
to act on that advice and immense organized power to do the exact opposite. Modern technologies have given us enormous global power for collective action, collective impacts. I don't just mean technologies in the familiar physical and chemical and biological sense, like mechanization or fertilizers or GMO seeds. I also mean technologies of organization and especially the multinational or transnational business corporation. What we have alongside that is a lack of capacity to control, manage, limit those activities and impacts. And my despair, abandonment, my bleak conclusion is that the triumph of the business corporation has been accompanied by the defeat, or perhaps you could say the co-option, the defeat or co-option of all the political powers and organisational possibilities that might have given us some ability to manage it. So I found myself writing a book that I had to hope was mistaken, not only because it repeats familiar warnings, but also because it explains why those long-standing warnings, that drumbeat, have been ignored and familiar recommendations have gone unheard. And even worse, because it implies there's no route out of this terrible course of action. Now, of course, whether I'm right or wrong, I must say that I hope to be wrong. That remains to be seen whether I'm right or wrong. I'll be very glad if any of you can suggest reasons for greater optimism. But what I'll try to do in this talk is set out four factors that brought me to this bleak conclusion. I'll be relatively brief on the first two so that I can go into more detail on what I've called our corporate, advisedly, our corporate food systems and their relation to political power. In my abstract, I highlighted these words from Kent Peacock. The only way we can hope to keep billions of people on this planet is to find ways of caring for this planet with almost horticultural intensity. That was all already 15 years ago. I would, at this point, put lines through the almost. We've already depleted and devastated the resources that enable what you might call industrial intensity, depleted the soils and biodiversity and water reserves and everything else that they rely on. So in biological, energy, climatic terms, the basic logic of our situation now is that many more people have to work the land much more carefully with far fewer chemical and energetic inputs, fossil fuels, and much less reliance on long distance movement of commodity foods. We have to give up industrial meat, probably dairy too. All the shortcuts of the so-called green revolution have to be drastically scaled back. So I use this quotation to raise two issues. The biophysical limits on agriculture are tightening, The resources we have left need much more care if there's to be any hope of feeding billions of people. And to say that they need much more care, horticultural intensity, means that many more people have got to work to produce food and steward the natural resources that underlie that production. Much more intelligence, ingenuity, social resources, just plain collective effort have to go into farming. Those tasks are even harder under destabilizing climate. I always think of this uh, famous wartime poster, Dig for Victory. A shift of that urgency is needed. But as we know, since the shift to industrial intensity, the productionist paradigm in agriculture about 70 years ago, 
no government has led any significant change to our food systems. And among the reasons why not is the simple fact that change is politically unpalatable. Even the richest countries of the world, perhaps you could accept Switzerland, treat their farmers with pretty much contempt. Even if they subsidize farming, the money tends to go to land, large landowners and agribusiness. Agricultural workers are treated even more miserably. If many more people were to work the land and to be paid properly for their efforts, food prices would rocket. So a bleak situation. Food production has to change drastically. It's going to be further threatened by climate destabilization. Those changes require much greater effort from many more people. But most of us in the developed world, at least, have got used to food arriving from we know not where, farmed by people who are badly treated and badly paid. So even if there weren't scores of other crises and issues competing for political attention, politicians are hardly going to canvass for voters on manifestos that ask them to devote much more time, attention, effort, resources to food. So two serious problems, planetary limits, the demands that horticultural intensity impose on many more people. But two more factors that I want to emphasize, since I think my home discipline of political theory can shed special light on them. To say, focusing on global corporate activity and its relation to political power. I want to start with some history. Here's two precursors of the modern business corporation, the Dutch and English East India companies. We've got their logos there, and also the coat of arms granted by Elizabeth I. That coat of arms is an explicit symbol of the Queen's, the sovereign's role in bringing that new corporate body into being. Now, these trading corporations, they're radically novel, but they build on a long history. States and sovereigns had long recognized and authorized corporate bodies like churches, universities, guilds, townships. We now take corporations for granted, but I think it's worth being more explicit about what they are. A corporation is an artificial legal body. It's separate from any individual person. So the monks and the abbots come and go over the years. The monastery remains as a corporate body. Potentially it could live forever. Some corporations are already over a thousand years old. The corporation is a legal entity, holds its own lands and funds, sometimes its own debts. It has a constitution or authority structure that allows it to make decisions, for example, to take out a mortgage on its land. In that case, the corporate body now bears the debt, even if individual people, of course, even though individual people made that decision, none of them bears liability for it. The corporation is a separate legal person with its own assets and liabilities. Come back to the significance of that. Just a word more on immortality. Corporations can live forever, but they can die. Uh, you might know Henry VIII dissolved, killed the monasteries because he wanted their assets. More generally, corporations die if they go bankrupt, even religious ones. Ongoing financial flows are the lifeblood of corporations. People die if they don't eat. A corporation dies when it loses the ability to pay employees 
or debtors, and no one's willing to bail it out. To add to the history, what the East India companies added to the older corporate forms was the profit motive. Profit became a central corporate goal, not just adequate finances, but a surplus. So the merchants petitioned Elizabeth I for the right to incorporate, not out of patriotism, but because they scented gold. Elizabeth I granted incorporation, not because she wanted to make the merchants rich, but because trade and profit would build English power. You could call these first corporations, business corporations, public-private franchises. Private ambition, the private motive, could be harnessed to public goals. Let me add one more historical point that is vital for understanding the modern business corporation. What these two companies pioneered was what we call shareholding, what was then called stockholding. And what emerged was something quite new with no parallel at all to previous corporate forms. People could buy stock in the India companies. The company got money for that stock. It kept hold of that money permanently. All the person got was a stock certificate, which carries three completely novel rights. First, the shares or stock certificates are transferable. People can sell them. Stock markets are born. Those certificates, those stocks could go up and down in value, hopefully up for the stockholder. People sometimes refer to shareholders as investors. Notice what happens. Mostly, they don't actually invest in the company. A stockholder only invests in the company at the very first stage of this process when they buy the stock certificate from the company. Mostly people are buying and selling on the stock market. When they do that, they invest in the stock market rather than the company. They gain, hopefully, the company is untouched and gains nothing from those transactions. Not investors, stockholders. Why are stock certificates worth something or saleable? Because they carry two further rights. This time, rights against the corporation itself. These rights might seem quite weak, especially if you only own a few of the shares that the company has issued. But for those people who are wealthy enough to own a large percentage, they grant enormous power. On the one hand, point two on here, stockholding carries rights to benefit, to an equitable share in dividends. The corporation can make profits. It doesn't have to pay out dividends, but if it does, you as a shareholder are entitled to a proportionate share of them. On top of those rights to benefit, stockholders have rights to some participation in governing the corporation. Those rights have varied quite a lot, but the usual standard case is that you have rights to vote on the appointments of directors of the corporation at an annual general meeting convened for that purpose. Why do I tell you that ancient history? Obviously, think of Cargill or Nestle or Syngenta or John Deere. They're not created by Elizabeth I or the Dutch Republic or any particular act of government. Modern corporations seem like purely private market entities. They've no obvious relation to states. They don't get their way internationally either by warships and cannons and military bases or seizing and governing foreign territory. Um, the East India companies were brutal 
colonial enterprises. There's some of the uh, merchant vessels can warships with the cannons. However critical you may feel about modern transnational corporations, you might think it's mere rhetoric or metaphor to lighten, liken them to these older state-sponsored colonial projects. I want to suggest three things have changed, but also a bit less than we might think. I'll start with a bit less. What hasn't changed is that corporations still rely on states for their existence and structure. Economists tend to treat the business corporation, so does lots of our public discourse, as a private or free market entity, emerging, emerging from people's exercise of rights to make contracts with one another. Legally, historically, that's quite false. People can make all sorts of contracts with one another. They can be very complicated. But what no contract can do is create a new separate legal entity, like a corporation, an entity that has its own property and owes debts in its own right separately from anything that individuals might owe. So the change isn't that modern business corporations are separate from state authorization. It's just they don't rest on specific state charters. Queen Elizabeth I or II or Charles III doesn't have to sign a specific um, authorization. Rather, modern corporate law grants general rights to form a corporation on individual initiative. And it lays down a structure for it, including directors and shareholders. That poses a puzzle. Legal systems are national. Certainly, corporate law is national. Corporations, if you look at international law, hardly ever appear. For example, it's French corporate law that enables Danone to exist. That can't explain how Danone has become a multinational or transnational corporation. And what we need is an explanation of how corporations have become the most powerful agents, actually, of modern globalization, gain such centrality to our global food systems. So we need two further changes to understand this. First, the export of corporate law to every, basically every legal regime in the world. In most countries, it's possible to form a corporate body if you follow the required legal steps and have the business model, of course, and business nous to keep the money coming in. So a quote from Katerina Pistol there, majority of countries received their corporate law from Europe as a result of various factors. Two things have changed. Corporate law now doesn't require specific authorization from the sovereign. It's a general right to form a corporation. And that now exists in most nations of the world. A third thing that's changed since the East India companies is the corporations, this corporate law regime that's been exported, gives corporations the legal power to own shares in other corporations and to exercise the beneficial and governance rights bound up with shareholding. So one corporation can become the wholly owned subsidiary of another. A parent corporation gains effective control rights over a subsidiary. And just as important, those rights travel across borders, and that gives the basis of the modern multinational. Here's a diagram to show the structure of one such body. I mentioned Danone, 
Here it is. Each blob represents a corporate entity in its own right. The lines reflect ownership of subsidiaries. The parent com company is in France, one of the big orange blobs there, as are a few of its subsidiaries. Others are scattered, as you see, all across the globe. It looks very complex. In some sense, it is. The basic structure is very simple. The parent company owns all the shares of the subsidiary corporations. The subsidiaries then have to serve its wishes and directives. Legally, as I've said, each corporation is an artificial person with its own legal standing. If we take that metaphor seriously, legal personhood, the wholly owned subsidiary is a slave of headquarters. So headquarters can reach all the way through the lines on this diagram, govern all the subsidiaries, assets and activities, money, goods, services, license fees, intellectual property rights, those can move around or be used at headquarters direction. So we've got massive resource flows all across this web, but they're dictated by a single animating goal to generate profits in a way that benefits the parent company. Now, if we ask who benefits from this arrangement beyond the parent company, we need to ask who owns shares in Danone. Those shares are traded on the stock market. Their location, I don't think, will be a big surprise to you. France, in this particular case, even more the US. And the same would be true for any of the other publicly traded large corporations in the agribusiness sector or food sector. Now, how far these shareholders benefit? Obviously, that depends on how the company does, market conditions, how skillful the directors and accountants are. But let me enter a second disagreement with the economists concerning the position of shareholders. As I say, economists tend to picture corporations as private free market actors. I've insisted they depend on states. Corporate markets, I would say, are not free markets in as much as corporations depend on states for their existence, their structure, their powers. Second disagreement with the economists. They often argued that shareholders are relatively weak or even defenseless. Workers, suppliers, customers, other people who relate to the corporation do so through contracts so they can bargain and go to court to enforce that bargain. I'm not sure that's actually an especially strong position because how far you benefit from those contracts depends very much on your relative market power. For farmers or production line workers or small retailers, that relative power is often very weak. Come back to shareholders, you can see their position as weak because corporations don't have any specific duties to distribute profits to shareholders. They just have to do so on an equitable basis if they choose to do so. In addition, a small shareholder is just like a single voter in a larger political constituency. But let me stress, the legal statutory basis of corporations gives shareholders governance rights. If you own all the shares, like Danone headquarters does for its subsidiaries, then you effectively control the corporation. If you own a lot of shares, directors have to listen to you. You have the power to affect their re-election to the corporate board. You have the power to sell your shares. And the danger is that if too many shares are sold, then the share price drops 
which creates the further danger that another actor will buy up a large proportion of the shares and the corporation might be taken over. In other words, a business corporation is structured by accountability to shareholders. You might say, well, shareholders have got that right to accountability because they invest in the company. But as I've said, mostly that's not true. Most shareholders bought their shares on the stock market. They gave nothing to the company. They have no duties to the company. They bear no liability or responsibility for the company's actions. They simply enjoy rights to benefit. And large shareholders, who of course by definition are already wealthy people or organisations, they can influence how the corporation is governed. So here's a slide to summarise what I've been saying so far. All this is written into corporate law. State power provides the basis for these immense organisations. The legal structure creates a one-way route for profits to flow towards those who are already wealthy enough to own shares, to those that have shall be given. As a political theorist, I'll put it this way. Public authority, legal authority, has been co-opted for private ends. Worse, the ends of those who are already rich. Equally important, the legal framework crosses borders. The East India companies had to use violence and conquest. Now corporations headquartered in France or China or the US have subsidiaries that do their bidding in other states, all more or less legally. Profits are funneled back to headquarters and then onto wealthy shareholders. Often underpriced goods, for example, soy or wheat or palm oil, uh, go flow through these organizations back to wealthier consumers. Corporation is able to govern sizable economic and social activity in another state, and nothing requires it to care about the benefits it might create there or the costs, the externalities that it might impose. In essence, then, <clears throat> we have global actors without global responsibilities and without any global authority to oversee them. Transnational business corporations really have two main lines of accountability. The first is to shareholders, the wealthiest members of the world's wealthier societies. And second, since they continually have to sell stuff, they must take account of who is able to pay for their products. And for lots of, lots of uh, in the food market, lots of goods are relatively low priced. That power is fairly widely distributed, much more so than shareholding, but it's still power that's largely located in the global north or the urban middle and upper classes of poorer countries. Business corporations have to follow the money. They search out those who have some money in order that those who already have a lot of money may gain even more money. So this is why my title refers to our corporations in scare quotes. Point is partly contrastive. These organizations don't act for most of the world's population. Perhaps you could say they really act only for a tiny minority, the 1% or 1% of the 1% but they also effectively channel resources towards the world, world's wealthier nations and large parts of their populations, which is why I say ours or us. It's true that in doing so, 
they impose some risks and costs, even on wealthier populations, the damage to public health, for example, from highly processed foods. But those costs don't bear any comparison, really, with the externalities that they're generating, which would be felt first and most seriously by billions of people outside the developed world. The lack of global oversight of these organisations follows from their distributed legal basis. So say every corporation relies on the law of a specific state in order to exist, as Danone relies on French corporate law, for example. Transnational corporations reflect the historical export of European corporate law. They also, and there's much more to say about this than I can here, reflect other aspects of international arrangements for business and finance. But the overall dynamics, unfortunately, I think are fairly clear. States, especially poorer and smaller states, have little scope to regulate or control the activities of foreign-owned subsidiaries. People in the East Indies may have resisted East India companies by force, often to their cost, but with the export of corporate law and the really astonishing success of international infrastructures for transport, finance, communication, that's changed. Nations across the world have basically made legal submission to organisations dedicated to the benefit of those living overseas. So we have near global organisations, but nothing like a global government to regulate or constrain them. These organisations reach across the world, but with a very narrow view, they're legally structured to funnel wealth to those who already own significant wealth. Underline that point, stress to start with that most industrial agriculture is fatally short term and unsustainable. That matters a lot if your fate is tied to that particular patch of land. And you might think in theory, it also matters a lot for large organisations. If you tear down forests for soybeans or expropriate peasants and set up a palm oil plantation, then you've obvious motives to hope that those will be long-term investments. The problem, apart from the fact that short-term always is the condition of long-term survival, the problem is that a global perspective can be relatively careless about specific investments because global actors can hedge risks. Inevitably, commodity agriculture is going to break down across the globe as the climate destabilizes, soil is lost, rivers dry up, new pests and diseases take hold. But those failures will be gradual, patchy. Global business corporations don't put all their eggs in one basket. So ironically, the global perspective can be much more careless than a local one. Let me close with two points that go back to the idea that corporate markets aren't free markets. Stress that corporate markets are structured by legal authorizations. But that doesn't mean that governments are free to revise or take back those structures. There's really no organized political force or possibility to modify these legal frameworks, not in any nation, never mind globally. Some of the richer countries, democratic countries, have regulated corporate activities, checked their externalities quite effectively in some cases, 
although we know how vigorously corporations protest against regulations and every new regulatory proposal. Regulation is sort of a sticking plaster. The basic political settlements, the rules of corporate law that constitute these massive organizations and empower shareholders and empower their reach across borders, none of that is really a matter of serious political debate. We have some alternative possibilities at the edges, cooperatives, employee-owned companies, benefit corporations, but they're tiny. No one, no one knows how to reorganize national, let alone global systems along those lines. So unfree markets, unfree governments. On top of that, corporations are less free than we might imagine. These markets, as I've stressed, are highly concentrated not quite monopolies, but generally with three or five companies dominating. But there's still competition, even vicious competition. Profit is essential to these, these organisations. Market share is a basic imperative. Loss of market share is loss of power, vulnerability to takeover. So, even, so each corporation, even one that effectively dominates a particular market, faces continual pressure. The imperatives are for ongoing sales, increased market share. Those are matters of life and death. And that means that everything else, for instance, the sustainability talk that you can see in some of the annual reports is inessential. The corporations have to impose continual pressure on suppliers and workers and material resources. For instance, farmers, are continually squeezed and must squeeze their land, even if they see the damage that that's seeing to water and soil. More broadly, you can call these organizations externality machines, because the question is always, does a given cost sit on the company's balance sheet? Or better, the question doesn't arise because these organizations are and have to be structured around financial flows. I don't want to deny that these organizations are made up of people who care about many other things apart from profit. Don't mean any cynicism about their motivations. My point is rather about the structure of the institution. Externalities have to be second thoughts, not first thoughts. Sometimes it's more efficient not to cause them. Sometimes reputational damage causes a company to be more careful. Sometimes regulations constrain, sometimes good leadership does intervene. But the basic imperative facing these bodies is really brutal. The money has to flow profitably. That's hardwired into the business corporation structure, also as it faces competing organizations and the pressures of its shareholders. So let me round off. My pessimism, the despair and abandonment of my title doesn't arise because I think it's impossible to feed people on a planet that's already badly damaged. There's so much waste in our current systems. Horticultural intensity is absolutely possible when people put their minds to it. In the abstract, there's an enormous amount we could do to survive and even prosper. But there are terribly hard questions about what social and economic arrangements would correspond to that, and even harder questions about how we'd get there. And then there's the worst question of all for me, 
Why do these systems keep going in the opposite direction, despite that drumbeat of calls for sustainability and public health? My answer to that last question is based on the power dynamics of transnational corporate activity in a highly unequal world and the unwillingness and inability of political power to challenge this. Stress that corporate power depends on government legal power in ways we rarely appreciate. Don't need to remind you that that political power is too often in the hands of megalomaniacs and kleptocrats. But even when it's not, even when governments are democratic, governments' hands are largely tied by the financial and structural power held by corporations, by the power that states already gave away to corporations in the form of corporate law. And in turn, corporations themselves complete powerlessness. They're bound to pursue profitability and market share or to perish. And on top of that, those who benefit from the current system have every incentive not to face up to its increasing costs and will be spared the worst costs, uh, even as crises pile up across the poorer nations of the world. So to quote a paper I admire greatly on why we haven't responded to climate uh, uh, destabilization, what we have with our corporate food systems is a decoupling of power from vulnerability at least until things are much too late. Thank you very much.